For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, I'll talk with actor John Proudstar about his role on Reservation Dogs. Listen to some positive stories about living with mental illness in a segment called Moments to Cope. Meet Robaba, a teacher and artist who is a refugee from Afghanistan. She'll share an original story. And remembering filmmaker William Friedkin. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. In 2021, a show debuted on the FX network and Hulu that quickly gained a worldwide fan base. Reservation Dogs features the dramatic and comedic stories of four teenage friends living on a reservation in Oklahoma. The show is made by an almost entirely indigenous North American crew of writers, directors, and performers. Joining them on this enormously successful creative journey is Tucson actor, director, and writer John Proudstar. He plays the role of Leon, the single father of lead character Willie Jack and the part draws on a lot of Proudstar's own life experience, as he will share next. Well, I worked with Sterling Harjo, the showrunner and creator, one of the creators on at least three films, uh, low-budget films that ended up going to Sundance. They just kind of floundered uh, in the industry for some weird reason. They were great films, if you ever get a chance to check them out. Good Night, Irene, uh, Barking Water, and Four Sheets to the Wind. Sterling, you know, his story, he was ready to give up. He he just wasn't making a living and, you know, his stuff wasn't sticking. And then I read online that him and Taika got this deal. And so I texted him. I said, hey, congratulations, man. And, you know, let me know if there's anything I can do for your project. And long story short, he was very interested in me for this part, uh, the part of Big, the cop. And I had to audition and go through the strenuous uh, auditioning process. And finally, when it was all over and done with, they had offered me the role. And, uh, you know, a few days before I was supposed to fly out, Disney had called and said, hey, we need you to take a COVID test before you fly out. And I went and did it. And I really didn't have any worries because I was, there was nothing wrong. You know, like I wasn't even sniffling or anything. But uh, I tested positive for COVID. And my whole world just started like, I go, I'm like, I can't believe this, man. And uh, both Taika and Sterling tried to reschedule stuff. They were talking to Disney. They were really, you know, trying to get me on the project. And at the end of the day, Disney was like, nope, got to recast them. And, you know, Sterling called me and apologized. And he said, hey, brother, if, if we get picked up for a series, you're going to be in it. Don't worry. And, and what did you think the likelihood of that was at that moment? You know, I know Hollywood, and if success comes, sometimes you don't have that option, you know, and I I thought they may not give him that option. They may say, hey, we're going to cast your little TV series with people that we like, not these unknowns that you've gathered. Having worked on as many film sets as you have done in your career, what would you say is outstanding about the Reservation Dogs community and the the way that 
a room full of indigenous writers are sharing their life experiences with directors who lived it as well, and then featuring these young performers who are living it now. You know what? I mean, I thought a lot about this, about the uniqueness of this and, you know, where it came from. And, you know, Sterling had mentioned that FX really rolled the red carpet out for them and gave them the freedom and trusted Sterling and Taika that they were going to, you know, tell a good story and pick good individuals. And, you know, to see such a large Native population, when I walked onto the set, I got a little choked up. And there's other Native actors on there that I've known throughout the years that we were just kind of looking at each other in awe, like like we had survived, like we had crossed this desert and we made it to the oasis and here we were and there's young Native people as crew members and all the writers were Natives and, you know, Starlin and, you know, it just kept going and going because it was just a dream. It was a concept in all our minds that one day we'd be able to get to do this. So again, kudos to FX for being so courageous and trustworthy to Sterling and uh, Taika. All right, let's start with Leon. Uh, What do you think, John, you brought to that role that came from your own lived experience? Uh, Well, I was a single father. I got custody of my daughter when she was five, and I predominantly raised her on my own, you know, with the help of her mother's family members. And it was terrifying because <laughs> I was like 28 or 29 and I'm, I'm a dude, you know, I was a bouncer and I was like the last guy you would want to be raising a little girl. I was thrown in the water to see if I could swim man, and I had to learn how to polish nails, pluck eyebrows. I had to learn how to do all that mom stuff or the, at least the stuff that we designated as mom stuff. And yeah, some of it was hard and yeah. some of it was heartwarming. Even in our worst moments, we now have that, she and I, you know, those are times, those were hard times for both of us, but now we laugh about it and it's a tender moment. And I ended up working with survivors of child molestation, uh, predominantly young females because of, you know, my experience of being a single father. Um, So I brought all that to the table for this dad character. Do you think that your daughter is proud of you? for what you've accomplished and for being on Reservation Dogs? Oh my God, yeah, definitely. Because she's been with me literally through the struggle of trying to make it in the film business. I I used to have to take her onto movie sets because I couldn't find a sitter and it just wasn't convenient or I didn't want to be away from her for long periods of time. So I I was like, I would call the directors and producers and say, hey man, my daughter's coming with me, so... (laughs) We're going to have to just deal with it. (laughs) And, you know, she had to experience all that with me. So for this to happen and for her to witness, you know, all this cool stuff, it's been great. I mean, she's, she's getting such a kick out of it. You know, my grandchildren are watching, you know, they don't call reservation dogs, reservation dogs. They call it Bata show. I mean, what else could I ask for? You know, my grandkids are watching me in the moment. And they're always going to remember that. And now I've created a pathway that says, hey, you know, if you want to do something, go out there and do it. And you're going to, you might have to struggle, but you can do it. That was John Proudstar. New episodes of Reservation Dogs, the third and final season, are currently streaming every Tuesday on Hulu. 
For the last 40 years, every week in Tucson, the National Alliance on Mental Illness hosts meetings for people living with mental illness and addiction. Their families and caregivers also attend. I visited one of the meetings, and some of those in attendance opened up and shared some of the small, everyday methods that they use to help them adapt. We call this Moments to Cope. My name is Steven. I live with bipolar one, panic disorder, um, and OCD. A good coping skill for me is um, having a dog, a very supportive dog that wakes me up in the morning and uh, wants a walk. And uh, I have to get up and it's great to get out and uh, visit with the neighbors. Talking seems to take me away from um, my mental illness. So reaching out to people and people that you can trust. You know, you need to find a good friend base to trust. Hi, I'm Susie, and I've been diagnosed with bipolar 2, PTSD, and generalized anxiety. I really unfortunately overanalyze and scrutinize everything. So um, right now, actually, one of the kind of breakthroughs that I've had is to not respond to subtext because it's a tool that you use to protect yourself when you're dealing with unstable people in your life, but it can become harmful for you and toxic for you going forward when people are not like that. And so it's actually more healthy for me to not engage in that subtext. In a very short amount of time, it's helped tremendously. But it's tricky. It is very tricky to kind of figure out how to healthfully um, not respond to subtext, you know, and still give credence to things when they need to be. I'm Peter, and uh, I live with major depression. I don't like to say I suffer from it, I just live with it. So the thing that helps me the most is to think about the fact that this is temporary. They say suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And I try to remind myself all the time that this too shall pass. You know, our, our minds are these time travelers. They go forward in the future full of anxiety and they go back into the past full of regret. And the best thing you can do is realize that this is the only moment you have right now. All of that, you know, that's a figment of your imagination, essentially. It's, it's just your imagination run amok. For me, I find what's most helpful is actually to think about what does my butt feel like in my chair? What do these clothes feel like on my body? You know, something physical to ground me in the world that I'm in now so I can be back in the present where I can actually be effective at dealing with things. Uh, my name's Athena. Um, I have depression, anxiety, and PTSD. It kind of depends on the trigger for me, at least. Um, I do have medication, um, but if I don't use that, I will use word searches, which is <laughs> kind of, I don't know, it works for me. Um, I just get like little cheap ones from like Walmart or something. It's just really good to distract myself, especially at work when I get, because I get anxious at work sometimes. So it's just something to like kind of help distract me. It just kind of keeps my mind occupied. And so when it's not occupied, then I just have like a lot of like anxious thoughts or like negative self-talk and stuff. So it's a good distraction. <laughs> Thanks to members of NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, for participating in Moments to Cope. Our region is home to thousands of refugees, with many arriving here following persecution, imprisonment, torture, or traumatic dislocation. 
There is a group called Owl and Panther that helps to provide refugees of all ages with healing experiences and a welcoming community. Next, we'll hear the story of Owl and Panther member Robaba. She's a teacher and artist who came here from Afghanistan. She begins with a story written from the perspective of a teenage girl living in Afghanistan under Taliban rule. Hello to all. This is Robaba Suruj. I'm from Afghanistan and I have been working with kids and I was teacher for near 10 years. I have been living in Tucson, Arizona for two years and I'm so glad I'm living here. I like my friends and the atmosphere I work in it. I prepared an essay about girls and women in Afghanistan, the problems and the challenges and struggles they have in our country. This is not my story, but this is based on truth and events happen all around my country. The title is Water Lily in the Swamp. I am a girl from Afghanistan. I am such a water lily in the swamp. Regardless of blackness, dirt, and mess everywhere, I rise up and shine spreading hope, brightness, peace, happiness, success, courage, and all positive vibes all around my country. After that, the world. I'm a human. I need to breathe the fresh air in nature, sing like a bird in my lungs, dance like a leaf in the spring breeze. I need to swim like a tiny red fish in an endless water, play like a dragonfly between colorful fall leaves. Sometimes I fall down like a spring rain drop on mud sometimes walk on sky pathways like white snowy clouds wearing my favorite clothes cheering my makeup on and opening my hair with a big smile i'm capable capable and very eager to continue my education like you and sometimes more than you i know I'm supposed to conquer all challenges and struggles several times more than you through a very suffering way. But anyway, I'm going to succeed and increase my education, knowledge, skills, and qualifications. Afghanistan and my people will be proud of me and my accomplishments. I will teach the new generation in my country and the world is going to recognize how wonderful our people are, especially girls and women. I am 13 years old, the oldest sister of my siblings. My mom passed away and my dad was killed by Taliban. We don't have anybody to take care and manage everything for us. We no longer have a home to live in. We live in a ruin without the primary possibilities. 
I don't know how I'm going to continue my life supporting my siblings, but I'm going to try my best. Despite all of the obstacles, I starve for education. I dream sitting under a tree, smelling book pages, reading that, involving in its world. Ah, oh, nobody even is able to imagine my feelings and emotions about that. But Taliban regime banned everything for us. I even cannot go out of home comfortably. But this is my dream. I'm going to battle for that and pretty sure that I'm going to succeed. And now we'll learn more about Robaba in an interview with Leah Britton. Robaba, thank you for sharing such an amazing essay with us. People who come from a different background may not be able to understand some parts of your experience. What's something you hope that they learn from your story? In our life, we always face and confront a lot of challenges, struggles, and sometimes maybe we will be disappointed about life and the dreams we have. But I'm from a country that I faced a lot of challenges, struggles. I grew up with a lot of problems, but we always should have hope, hope in our abilities, in our qualifications, in our future. And we can teach the new generation, people around ourselves, what we face and what we learn. There's a part of your essay where you said, sometimes you fall down like a spring raindrop on mud. What do you do when you start to feel like that? What gives you hope to pick yourself back up? The biggest hope for me, it was education. And I always try to increase my education. In my life, whenever I feel disappointed, I read different books and it was kind of hope for me. And I will continue that. I think how much we live, as much as we live, we need that, and we always should study different books. For me, it's really, really good. Is there a particular book that had a profound impact on you? I read Dil Karengi's books. I read a collection of good experience of different people around the world. I studied that. I was wondering how the people faced uh, problems very positively and they just choose the positive ways and they just focus their energies to the positive points of their life. It's like changing my mind and my, the way I think. And where are you in your education journey? Have you been able to increase your education like you hoped? Uh, yes, I work with kids. And I want to follow my education as a teacher. And I will continue that. And uh, sometimes I feel there are a lot of kids like me that they face a lot of problems and a lot of darkness points like me. And they feel disappointed in their life. And I will be like a good model for them and I will describe them my experiences in my life. I will be glad 
if I can teach a kid something new and she or he learn from me and whenever he or she disappointed and she or he will remember me like oh Robaba teacher Robaba said me like that and I will do that and it will be the biggest happiness and joys for me. When you were growing up, did you have someone like that that inspired you and you look back and think of their impact on your life? When I was a kid, I had a lot of good teachers and they were very kind to me and I will never forget them. They taught me a lot, a lot. I always appreciate my teachers. Thank you to Robaba for sharing her story. You can see a few of her paintings and find a link to Owl and Panther on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. Earlier this week, the news broke that filmmaker William Friedkin had passed away at age 87. He became a household name after the release of The Exorcist in 1973, a movie so controversial that it was perceived as being a threat to the Catholic Church. In fact, it terrified my mother to the extent that we were forbidden from even saying the movie's name in our house. Since then, I've gone on the record as being a fan of the film, saying that I find it enjoyable and life-affirming in the way that some people seem to think of The Sound of Music. Sorry, Mom. Even if he'd never made another movie, Friedkin would still be remembered for his work on The Exorcist. But as film essayist Chris DeShiel will tell us, throughout his career, Friedkin remained a unique director and writer who crossed over many genres and rarely took the easy path when it came to telling his stories. William Friedkin is a director I've always associated with a brief period in the early 1970s when filmmakers of the so-called New Hollywood were daring to make different kinds of movies. Friedkin's two most popular films were released then, but in fact he had a long career, 56 years and 28 feature films. So it's more than a little unfair to focus just on that time. He was different from a lot of the new directors. He never went to film school. He started in local Chicago television news, eventually directing news shows, and after that, making TV documentaries. At the same time, he watched lots of films and became influenced by the European artists in the 60s, like Godard and Fellini and others. And these new styles blended with his own more traditional old-school tendencies. Friedkin started directing narrative features in 67, and had moderate success. But then he came across a script adapted from a book about two cops who made a huge heroin bust in New York City. Friedkin had recently watched Z, a political thriller based on real events, and noticed that the director, Costa Gavras, shot the picture in a documentary style, even though it was a narrative with actors. And that's how Friedkin decided to shoot The French Connection. Using these nonfiction-type techniques, Friedkin created a film that is sharp-edged and gritty, and it often seems as if the camera just happened to be there recording real behavior of the characters. How's everything, baby? Everything's everything, baby. How come there's nothing out there, man? That stuff's all milk. There ain't nothing around. Nobody's holding. Uh, I got a name for you. Cyborg of Brooklyn. Both? Yeah. There's been some talk, though. About what? Shipment. Coming in this week, week after. Everybody's gonna get well. Well, who's bringing it? Friedkin resisted the idea of Gene Hackman playing the lead role. He wanted other actors. But thankfully he settled, and Hackman was great. 
The movie is chock full of wonderful scenes, and the most famous is a spectacular car chase with Hackman racing to catch a hijacked elevated city train. One of the scariest and most thrilling car chases ever. Anyway, the film went over budget. A lot of people were getting annoyed. It was finally released in 1971 and immediately shot through the roof, becoming a major hit and winning a bunch of Oscars, including one for Friedkin. With little time to catch his breath, Friedkin then agreed to direct a film adapted from William Peter Blatty's book, The Exorcist, a project that had been rejected a few times by other people. Another long and difficult shoot resulted in a very dense, dark, and compelling horror film. I need reassignment. You're the best we've got. I think I've lost my faith. Is there someone inside you? Sometimes. Who is it? I don't know. Is it Captain Howdy? How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? I'm Damien Carroll. I'd like to help you. Where's Reagan? In here with us. The Exorcist exploded in 1973 into a worldwide blockbuster hit, an even bigger success than The French Connection. What makes The Exorcist so good? There are a lot of factors, but one of them is that it's dead serious. There's no kidding around, no spoofing on the premise of demonic possession. There's just a total commitment with sound and image and editing and performance to the story and its terrifying emotional intensity. So, in terms of popular success, how could Friedkin ever top these two films? Well, he never did, and I think there was a lot of pressure on him to create the magic again. But he made good movies. Since then, Friedkin has spent over two years in five countries, on three continents, creating his latest film, an unusual adventure into the realm of suspense. His next film was called Sorcerer, with Roy Scheider, who'd been the co-star with Hackman in The French Connection. It was adapted from the classic 1953 film The Wages of Fear, with an alarming story involving four men having to drive across mountain roads with trucks filled with nitroglycerin. Sorcerer is a bold, exciting suspense film, but a little movie called Star Wars got released the week after, and swamped it. A real stroke of bad luck for Friedkin. Okay, why don't we shoot? He's offset. I've got the slate. I need to also mention his 1985 movie, To Live and Die in L.A., another cop thriller, a little bit dirtier and more raw than The French Connection, but worth watching. I saw it on its original release in the theater, and there's one car chase sequence with cars speeding the wrong direction into oncoming traffic on a busy L.A. highway. I'm pretty sure Friedkin was the first one to come up with that idea and try it out in a film. I just remember the audience in the theater at the time rocking with tension and excitement through the whole thing. William Friedkin always took chances. He made movies on controversial subjects and got a lot of flack. He spoke his mind and wasn't afraid of or threatened by disagreements. His caliber of filmmaking was at a level that we don't get to see much anymore. I'm Krista Scheel, 
And this is Arizona Spotlight. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Sorry, Mom. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. The show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.